Hello, friends. Welcome to Tales from the Nobody. This is episode one of the dog walking episodes. So what we'll be doing is, uh, as a fake therapist, uh, when I walk my dog, I will just spend a couple of minutes talking about certain things uh, that I think about while I walk my dog. Uh, She is a annoying, yappy, 15-pound terrier chihuahua mix that pees on everything. Uh, this, uh, this morning on our first walk, uh, tried to eat several used condom wrappers. Just a lot going on with this dog, and I need to share my anxiety with others, and so I will do so in this pod- uh, podcast. And with the lockdown going on in Seattle, I'm in Seattle, and uh, right across the street from me, they're building one of the quarantine sites. Uh, to house people that um, are suspected of having coronavirus or um, can't um, find a place to stay because they're homeless in in order to self-quarantine. That's why they have these sites. So we're sort of the epicenter here. And uh, it's the first time we've faced this since 1918. So there's a lot of anxiety and fear going on around coronavirus. And... Here in Seattle, we are so geared in the United States and in Seattle to to attack everything that we are doing, everything that's going on, to attack it head on, and uh, you know work harder, batten down, right? You know, we look at it in times of war, right? World War II. What do we do? We we work harder. We build up the industrial infrastructure. We we train for war. We we. The women get out of the kitchen and into the workplace. This is this is how you, and we are culturally known to deal with our anxieties of an unknown situation is to get to work. And that's true of certain segments of our population, but it is not true of all segments of our population. And so it has become a bit of an issue um, for those that have to stay home. Those of us that are in more white-collar jobs that that need to stay home and work, and and it's against our nature, and so we build up anxiety from that. Add the level of anxiety having to do with, uh, we don't know the information coming in, what what the virus uh, entails, what could happen to us, who can attack, the uh, information changes all the time, we don't know whether we're vulnerable or not, add that anxiety into it, the risk to our loved ones, add that anxiety into being locked down, staying away, it's just, well, it's unprecedented in our lifetime. Uh, the last time in the United States that we had this level, and especially specific to Seattle, was 1918 during the Spanish flu. So on top of um, the anxiety of our day-to-day life that we were already facing and all those issues, now we had uh, this on top of it, right? And not only do we have the virus, but then now we have the fear of what happens after the virus happens, once we get through all this. Do we end up uh, unemployed? What happens with our economy? Are we going to be able to pay rent before and after? Am I going to have to get a new job? What changes are there? Right? And we have leadership that gets, sometimes we get mixed messages. What's the priority? What's the economy? So all of these unknowns cause anxiety. And really what it comes down to is we get out of our routine and we feel unsafe. Okay? We're unsafe. So what I want to talk about is a fake therapist. Uh, I don't have any clients to talk to this week. Too many of them. I just want to talk a little bit about some different people 
who have addressed this and uh, in, in much more dramatic ways, but also hopefully give some insights as to you know different approaches mentally we can take to this that maybe are effective and hopefully in an entertaining way. And as always on Tales of Nobody, we're going to talk about people that you may or may not have heard of and some of their history and how it applies. So the first person we'll talk about will be uh, Viktor Frankl, who is probably the most famous person that we'll talk about. Viktor Frankl uh, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Um, was a head of theoretical approach, um, a theoretical approach to psychology uh, based on his belief system uh, and it was born out of uh, his uh, experience through the Holocaust, um, Auschwitz and, and things of such. We're also going to talk about uh, another person by the name of Father Kolb who also experienced in a very different way the Holocaust and his approach as a Catholic priest, his approach and how it differed from Viktor Frankl's. Uh, and the third person we'll talk about is uh, Father Lawrence um, Lawrence Martin Jokel. Jokel. I got it. It's not Jokel. Why am I forgetting? I'm blanking on this. Keep in mind that these are all just things off the top of my head as I walk my dog. So anyway, I'll always refer to him as Father Lawrence because that's how I think of him. But uh, he was abducted uh, on, in Beirut in 1984 and was a prisoner for... A year, about a year and a half of Hezbollah, uh, and all of these um, different—they all approached their situation, their anxiety, their change, their sudden change that was put upon them, not by their own choice, in different ways, with different types of success. And um, we'll kind of finish that up with something called the Stockdale paradox, um, which kind of ties it together, and talk about a little bit of the differences, uh, and hopefully it can help you kind of mitigate through some of our anxieties here, some of our desires. You know, some of us are rebelling against uh, the idea of staying home and rules, especially those that are, uh, you know, older. I, I can only talk for my parents. Uh, my parents were walking around licking doorknobs in defiance, uh, convinced this is a media hoax and sensationalism before they started to take it a little more seriously. Um, I, I have... You know, lots of people that are young in 1920 who feel invincible and are a bit narcissistic and are knuckle draggers and aren't, you know, their belief system and rationality is going to lead them to do what they want to do because you can't let life end and life stop not thinking of others, which causes anxiety and other aspects. And then we have social media and all this. And so hopefully what we can do is talk about a little bit about how we can deal with the controls of what we can control letting go of what we can't control, and uh, illustrating that with the story of a couple of different individuals. Okay? So we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Uh, Tales from a Nobody podcast, the dog walking episodes. Episode one, we're talking today about um, being locked down, being held captive, uh, and, and throughout history and a couple of different people. And I want to start with a guy named Viktor Frankl, who uh, you probably, a lot, many of you probably know the name and know the individual. He uh, uh, was a, uh, a Jewish Austrian 
uh, who was a uh, neurologist and a psychologist. Um, he studied originally uh, uh, in more of a psycho uh, analytical approach and Freud and knew Freud personally and Alfred Adler and learned from them a bit. Ended up ultimately developing a completely different theoretical approach uh, to psychology and uh, came out of the Holocaust and wrote a book about his experience and how he uh, overcame that called Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning has led to, uh, has, has been utilized in something called the humanistic approach to psychology, which is um, a very popular approach right now and uh, is very kind and, and gentle and uh, has to do a lot with self-realization and positive reinforcement, meditation, uh, but is very much about positive uh, positive thought process and humanistic. And that is a very Viktor Frankl, Frankl kind of deal in man's search for meaning. Now, in this story, it's his story, much of the book, and much of the story of him in his existence has to do with his experience uh, during World War II. In World War II, before World War II, he was um, a prominent member of the Jewish community, upper middle class uh, to upper class, uh, highly educated, uh, was uh, a, a rather political in the Australian, Australian, Austrian uh, political machine uh, and their authority, authoritarian regime. Uh, and when Austria willingly um, let uh, Germany and, and, and the Nazi and the Third Reich take control of Austria, he was then considered as both a Jew and part of the authoritarian regime of the past, he was considered part, he was considered uh, an outcast in that society. Eventually he became part of a um, show uh, ghetto in which this show ghetto was built uh, for upper middle class and upper class Jewish uh, families to show a community that can be shown to the international world, the Red Cross and the, and, and the world about how well they were reassimilating uh, and treating Jew, Jewish families in the Jewish community. And so uh, as part of this, he was part of a, a very modern town. It had coffee shops. It was well laid out. There were reasonable sized homes. Uh, there was enough food uh, they were taken care of. He, in this show uh, ghetto, he, he did lectures at the theater that were packed and well attended. Uh, there were theatrical shows. They were just, it was what the, the Nazi regime wanted you to see. Now, granted, it wasn't perfect. He was still in a situation, Victor Frankl, Frankl and his family, where he was um, imprisoned. But he certainly wasn't in the Warsaw Ghetto. He, he certainly wasn't uh, outside of Krakow. He wasn't in Auschwitz. He wasn't in Dachau. He wasn't in a labor camp. Um, it was a much better existence than your typical Jewish family or your, your um, lower class Jewish family was going through. Uh, because of his intelligence, his upper middle class, he eventually was led to a situation where, um, as the war went on, he was taken out of the ghetto as things became tighter and tighter. Um, 
people were taken out of the, the ghetto and put into different camps. His wife was sent to a labor extermination by labor camp where she was murdered uh, by working her to death. It was the same camp as Anne Frank, uh, the only member of Franco's family to survive the Holocaust. Uh, and the war was his sister who immigrated early to Australia. Meanwhile, he was sent to Auschwitz. But his experience was different, again, than the typical person there. He was, he was, he was treated differently. He was um, put in positions of some authority within uh, the community, uh, Auschwitz. When there was depression, there were issues. Um, his Nazi guards would ask him to go calm down, talk down, um, pat down anxiety, fear, those kind of things, uh, in which his great skill and mental health ability was useful. Uh, because of this, um, he was able to um, procure a higher status and privileges that others in Auschwitz were not. Uh, slightly better living situations, slightly better food, privileges, etc. Is this a huge issue, a huge difference? No, it's, it's still traumatic. It's still a struggle. But it's interesting to see how his approach to this survival method, as he goes into survival mode and is dealing with his trauma and learning how to survive, where his center comes from. Um, and it is important, as we will hear about others, on the difference in these approaches uh, and what it says about ourselves. So in this case, he has this different experience. And Viktor Frankl um, survives and ends up writing this book about man's search for meaning. And the idea that he brings forward is that we must find positive things. We must find the bright side. We have to find the purpose and meaning to every situation. And that's a very comforting thought. And it's something that we as a people have been doing for the last, you know, 30 years. It has become a hugely important thing. It's an industry of self-help, right? Of looking at the positive side and remaining positive, right? Uh, when we deal with a tragic situation, we look at the positive nature of it, what we can learn from it. And I think there's a lot of good things. Now, how do we apply that to today? We're in Seattle, we're locked down. I'm able to walk my dog, I do my work from home. My 12 year old wants to stab me in the eyeball. I want her to do her homework. She wants to play computer games. She hasn't had a shower in a week and she smells like feet. You know, how do we apply this to our current anxiety and issues, right? Well, here's the, the Franco look at it. Right? We're locked in. We're anxious. Things aren't normal. We don't know what's happening next. Here's a good opportunity, though, for me to reconnect and connect with my daughter in a unique way. Here's an opportunity for me to keep her from her feeling traumatized. Uh, here's an opportunity for me to look into certain things in my life, to take a breath. Maybe it's time for me to diet. could use it, right? Maybe it's a good time for me to um, start writing another book. Right? Tales from a Nobody, such an incredible bestseller. There are dozens of you that have enjoyed it. Uh, I think Kindle, I think I pay Kindle to have you read it. Um, or, you know, every time somebody buys a book, I owe the publisher, you know, 
50 bucks for printing it, right? So maybe it's time for me to work on a book. Maybe it's time for me to reassert and or reassess certain things and look at the positive side of that, right? Let's look at the good. Well, that's a healthy and wonderful feeling to dealing with levels of anxiety, right? Let's look at what this means. What is this opportunity? We're looking at the positive opportunity. However, in traumatic moments, in trauma, I'm not sure that that's the, always the best approach, and I'll illustrate that throughout this uh, podcast. In this case, sure, why not? Let's look at the approach. But let's add the next level of this. Now, what happens when this thing doesn't really touch you, but you are um, you have to stay home, and there's a little bit of anxiety, but you have a salary, and there's going to be things, you have your jobs waiting for you, and it ends up being a couple weeks of a unique nuisance slash break. That's good. Now, what happens when you learn tomorrow that your father has come down with coronavirus, that there's the Seattle hospitals are overwhelmed. He's 75. They're not sure they'll be able to give him a ventilator if he needs it because that'll have to go to somebody who's younger with a better chance of survival. He's a 40-year smoker, right? So, is you know, this is a respiratory issue. They may have to triage him. By the way, you can't see him. And he's not in a position to talk because he's, he's sick. Okay, all of a sudden, this is different. So when we look at it from that perspective, it's a little harder to say, well, let's look at the positive of this. What can I do better, right? No, now the metric has changed a little bit and we have a traumatic crisis. And that's where we have a disconnect going on with this virus of people that aren't connecting one to the other, aren't connecting that, hey, if I'm out hanging out and partying, because I'm out of school or I'm out of work, I'm not going to let the virus take it. Well, this thing passes in such a way that's dangerous that somebody's father, you know, now you've created a traumatic moment for somebody else, unbeknownst to yourself. And that's where we have this very interesting conundrum going on in our society where people are looking at what's in the best interest of self and what's in the best interest of, um, you know, of, of the community. So when you look at, uh, in a moment, I'll talk about Father Kolb and his approach. His approach tended to be something that was more of an example of martyrdom for the community good and inspiring the community. Victor Frankel is a little bit different, okay? So as Frankel comes through, he has extra privileges, he has a, a better situation, he gets through Auschwitz, he gets through, he survives, and it's a traumatic experience, but... Um, his outlook on it was a little bit different, right? He was able to, to survive and, and grasp little things and, and find a positive outlook, and, and, and that's good, but not always realistic for everybody. So how this seems to have affected our society is he comes out and he writes this book, and everybody goes, see, that's the most, this man lived through this horrific occasion and found a purpose, found a purpose in, in what it made him and all of those things, came to terms with it. And I think that's true to a certain extent. He came to terms with it. But it wasn't just Auschwitz that he came to terms with. This is a man that was also trying to figure out how to deal with his own inner guilt that he wasn't, um, that he survived and his wife didn't, that his family didn't. 
that he was treated differently than others and given a better opportunity to survive, whereas others around him who were not blessed with his intelligence, were not blessed with his diplomacy, were not blessed with his skill set uh, or his advantage, weren't. And so in that process of trying to find that, how are we doing, fellas? Um, in that process of trying to find, again, I'm out walking the dog, so this is just how it works of what that purpose and where he fit in, he's also trying to explain and rationalize to himself that he deserved it. Um, and so if it was totally random, and then the question was, why did he live and why did he die? Then, and there's no purpose to it, then that becomes a really difficult thing to accept of, of survivor's guilt. You know, so we have to find something deeper, that there was a deeper calling, a deeper meaning in order to not damage our psyche and to help us survive these unanswerable questions that, that sit there. And that's the same thing that people will face in this coronavirus potentially. If the system, people right now in Italy, certain people are living and certain people are dying. And it's certain people are getting it and certain people aren't and it's random. Certain people are getting it and they have flu-like symptoms but it's not that bad. Other people are 39, 40 years old in good shape and they're in intensive care in critical condition. Why? It's random. There's no control. That's very unsettling. So we have to find a deeper purpose, a different meaning in order to explain it to us. Otherwise, it's too frightening for us to just always take on. Okay? But that's also a, that's also a level of repression. And, I'm sorry. A level of suppression and a level of uh, denial that we are avoiding our fears. And I think Frankel was part of that. And when people buy in that there's a greater purpose... In certain ways, that can be a challenge. Um, much like religion. There's a lot of great things about that belief structure and being able to hand off that anxiety and pressure and, and feel safe about it. On the other hand, there's other things that allows it to be uh, a wall and a facade from some levels of reality. So that's Victor Frankl's uh, uh, role in this. Uh, we'll be right back with Father Kolb and his story. Okay, so as I go on, I want to talk now, uh, we've talked about Viktor Frankl, I want to move on now to Father Maximilian Kolb, All right? And Father Kolb was somebody who was a, a Polish a Franciscan friar uh, around the same time as, as Kolb, or as uh, Frankl in, in, in dealing with the, the Nazi regime in, in World War II. And he was a bit more of a hard-headed person. Um, he was a bit more of a of take things on, be a little more defiant uh, in nature. And uh, so in his, his background, he, he became a, a, he went to seminary, he, he, he graduated um, from different colleges, etc., in theology, and uh, was in Poland. And he had the opportunity to leave, and he didn't. Um, he was given the opportunity to pledge allegiance to the Nazi regime and be protected, and he didn't. And ultimately, Father Kolb ends up in Auschwitz. Now, Father Kolb is, is a saint, canonized in 1984. Daisy. So, in that uh, context, he ends up going off to um, uh, Auschwitz defiantly after helping. Um, uh, I believe up to 2,000 Jews. I'm, I, 
you know, to, to some level of safety, he, he eventually uh, gets placed in Auschwitz. And during that time, there is a, uh, <coughs> an attempt to escape and an escape uh, of some prisoners. And in order to punish uh, the people that were in that area, that part of the camp, uh, the Nazis say, you're going to go on a, uh, 10 of you will die by starvation. And that's, so they select 10 people. And uh, Kolb wasn't one of them. Uh, but there was a man who, upon hearing about his, his death sentence, decided that, uh, you know, really lost, you know, I mean, his, lost it and said, you know, my family, I have kids. I, he, he was despondent and terrified, as I, many of us would be uh, at hearing that. And Father Kolb raised his hand and said that he would take his place. Uh, and he did. So after two weeks, they, the, the, the ten were down to one. And that was Father Kolb was the last one still alive. He had no water, he had no food, he was dying of thirst, dying of starvation. And whenever the guards would come in and check on him, he would be typically on his knees in prayer and in defiance uh, in the middle of his cell. And uh, in order to get this defiance over with, uh, they decided that they would execute him by lethal injection. And as the story goes, uh, Father Kolb was... uh, uh, strapped into a chair and took his left arm and held it up again in defiance. Never once pleading for his life, never once complaining, never once doing anything. And uh, he put his arm up ready for the injection to be put into his blood that he died, and, and he did. Um, Maximilian Kolb was uh, canonized by uh, Pope John Paul II in, I believe, 1984, and is the patron saint for prisoners, is um, patron saint for war prisoners, is patron saint of a lot of things, but that was the fact is patron saint of prisoners. It can apply to us a little bit here spiritually, as we are prisoners of this virus. We are prisoners of our attempts to do this. The difference is, is we are not being forced into this by an authoritarian regime, but hopefully by common decency, because we are trying to um, help save others, right? But his defiance in the face of, of, of authoritarianism gave him a purpose um, to continue on. Uh, so he was a bullheaded guy, a little bit different than Viktor Frankl, right? He volunteered for the worst. <coughs> so whereas Viktor Frankl took advantage of being an upper middle class doctor, educated Jewish man, was given um, higher level of status within by his guards, and he found purpose. Victor Kolb took the place of somebody else and martyred himself. Now, this comes from a place, as both of them do, of spirituality. Father Kolb said that uh, when he was 12 years old, he had a vision of the Virgin Mary who came to him and had two crowns in the vision. One was red, one was white. 
and she, the, the red, the white offered uh, a lifetime, if you wore that crown, of peace and happiness, and the red was you would die a martyr. And she said, would you be willing to wear both crowns? And in his vision, he said, yes, I would be willing to read, to have both. So in his mind, he had already started to build an identity of somebody who was comfortable with being a martyr, who would step forward and had built out um, in his psyche these kind of scenarios and was probably facing these kind of scenarios in his mind on a loop consistently um, through this process. Daisy. So... When the opportunity came forward to fulfill this vision and this identity of what, where he saw himself and what he was, what he wanted to be seen as, he stepped forward. And that's really an important thing um, because that was how he saw himself. And so he was able to take that information uh, and apply it to a working life situation. What was different about his approach than Frankel is Frankel's looking for meaning and everything and the best possibility and what we can learn. Good stuff. Kolb, on the other hand, is resigned to his fate, has built his identity around this, and is looking to step forward and fulfill his um, vision of himself in martyrdom. Both are admirable traits, okay? But both are, look at how we are going to work through things and experience things. So as you went through this, from a personal standpoint, which do you think between Frankel and, and Kolb, which of these two um, had the most personal fulfillment? Which one of those two do you think suffered personally the least? All right? So... Was it Viktor Frankl or was it Kolb? Well, it's probably Frankl, right? He, 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 he went along with the system. He took advantage of the system. Kolb didn't. Kolb had opportunities to take advantage of the system. Didn't. Okay? Refused to leave. Refused to give allegiance. Frankl was a little different. He went along with it. Worked within it. He suffered less in, in many ways. Um, which of these two do you think inspired inspired more and was the more inspirational for the community so which do you think served his community better uh and the betterment and improved the the world around him better his fellow man tough to say i mean victor frankel after the fact was very influential um during those experiences he spoke to people and kept them from suicide kept them from you know, suicide. So I think you can make an argument that he was very influential in that way. However, I would argue that um, in many ways that was delaying the inevitable, right? Um, and I'll make that case a little later. Uh, on the other hand, the people that experienced the martyrdom and um, saw the unselfish nature of Father Kolb were instantly um, put into a, inspired, you'd imagine, by somebody else's um, benevolence and unselfishness to hopefully care for each other, right? And so it's hard to say, but I think you can see a little bit of the difference. But, you know, one went on I, I, over the course of time. We know Viktor Frankl. We know man's sense of, you know, uh, 
since a meeting and we know his works. Perhaps he had the long-term advantage. It's tough to say. I guess we have to grapple with that personally. So Father Kolb was eventually made into a martyr uh, and, a, and a patron saint um, and was very different in the way he handled this, his defiance and his isolation. Okay, we're going to move on to uh, the third example of this story of dealing with anxiety and um, capture and being basically being held into something against our will to not um, and how our mindsets may be positioned against this. And again, I remind you, these are all very drastic accounts um, as opposed to what we're dealing with right now in the, in Seattle and the United States and New York and around the world with this pandemic. But still, the pandemic is something that is this is new for most of us in the world, and certainly in the United States. Um, our healthcare system being overwhelmed like this is a new concept. Um, our leadership being altered from uh, a federal, strong federal uh, concept to being much more uh, localized by state and municipalities, as opposed to bigger, broader initiatives and and. Uh, rule from the White House and the federal government. These are you know, unique times and they come with anxiety. They are not the same as what happened to Father Martin, uh, excuse me, Lawrence Martin Jenko. Uh, it does not compare. So Father Jenko was a Catholic priest uh, in, Bay, uh, in Beirut and he had been in country only a few weeks when uh, he got up in the morning one day, was ready to go to his work, which was with a Catholic mission. My dog, Daisy, we don't need to smell everything. Let's go. Um, he went to uh, work. He had a driver who he had built a relationship with uh, who was uh, Muslim. And suddenly he found himself in the streets of Beirut when there was gunfire. And from the front of the vehicle, men stormed and from the rear of the vehicle men stormed placed themselves in the car and drove off with both of them they uh they took the driver and they placed him in the trunk of a car uh trunk of the car and switched to another vehicle and they left the driver there in a uh, mosque parking lot the plan was uh conceived and was part of an overarching plan by Hezbollah in retaliation to um, some actions of Israel and uh, in that that now continuing loop of a of a narrative between the two um, and was a part of a new process in order to try to get back 17 Hezbollah agents that were imprisoned after a Kuwaiti attack, including uh, some high-ranking members of the Hezbollah uh, leadership team. Daisy, come on. So it's something I think about um, Father Lawrence as he is. I'm walking out here in the afternoon sun here in Seattle, and it's warm, and and uh, the dog pees on stuff, and. Uh, it, it, the story that Father Martin, or Father Lawrence Martin Jenko went through is, 
in his mindset is particularly appealing to me now, maybe because I grew up uh, Jesuit and look into some of the Jesuit ideals or or maybe it's the way I imagine I would want to re, to act in this same situation, but it's appealing. He knew inherently from the beginning that he would be better served, and I believe is probably was his nature, that instead of arguing, fighting, or um, uh, pushing back against his captors, he, he knew to be friendly from the outstart. So he was terrified and scared, as you can imagine any 51-year-old, I believe he was at the time, would be. But he also knew that this was something outside of his control immediately and that there were circumstances uh, that he was not privy to. So he stayed quiet. Um, he was not disre- disrespectful or rude. And he answered questions to the best of his ability. Daisy, we are not sniffing that. Come on. Come on. This dog. Anybody want a dog? It's just standing there now, looking aggressive. Sniffs it, stands, won't let me go. Come on, let's go. So anyway, so Father Jenko goes through this uh, experience, and he tries his best to at least be neutral. As they start to question him more and more, and he's got a language barrier, obviously. Well, not obviously, but there's a language barrier between them it starts to occur to him that they're actually looking for a different priest, his predecessor, uh, the one he took over for in his Catholic mission. And he starts to have some level of hope that maybe this is just a big misunderstanding. And he tries to convey that to them that, no, no, he's not here. He's been gone for a few weeks. I've taken his place. And tries to convey that it's just a misunderstanding, no hard feelings or anything like that. However... He doesn't have the full scope of the information of what's going on, so he becomes um, still a victim of this situation, and they, uh, the Hezbollah leadership readjust to the situation. So within this uh, starts his ordeal. His ordeal where he is uh, bound and placed in the floor of a truck in order to get through checkpoints. Uh, he is bound and taped. His mouth is taped. He cannot move. Um, he is, he bloodies his nose because he, he busts open his nose and has a hard time breathing because, uh, hitting a bump, the, the top roof of the car or of the truck hits him in the face. He's bleeding. He can only breathe through his nose. He has a hard time breathing. Not only that, he's got high blood pressure and is not in uh, particularly strong health. And so where the risks sound familiar, where somebody who might be of normal health or, you know, average health would be able to be a little bit stronger when you start putting these limitations where he can't breathe out of his, out of his mouth, he can only breathe through his nose, he's got high blood pressure, he's in a, a stressful and anxious situation. Sound familiar with Corona? He's now even more at risk than somebody else. Nevertheless, his whole life had essentially been training in many ways for this moment or for moments such as this. So he immediately started to um, slow his heart rate, started to ease himself in his fear and panic um, through prayer, which is a meditative process. It's redundant. It's repeating. It's oftentimes um, consoling 
to the person and he internalized and prayed and pulled himself to a certain extent mentally out of the fear element and panic and out of that survival mode that we get into so that he would not be in that as best he can be functioning at that level. Now, here's why that's important. When we are in our survival mode, our reptilian brain and our, and our um, fight or flight, freeze or faint, when we get into that mode, other pieces of our system go offline, okay? Uh, our reasoning goes offline. Our, our um, ability to um, function our thoughts in, in a way that are self-reflective, right? they all go offline because everything needs to be centralized onto the protective uh, moment. And, you know, we're geared evolutionary-wise to, you know, fight a saber-toothed tiger. We have to be focused in front of us, right? That's where all of our attention goes. So I always like to think of it like in Star Trek when they're able to move the shields to the front of the USS Enterprise in order to um, put the power there in order to try to deflect uh, the attack from the front of us, right? Because that's where the Klingon warship is. Everything, all power goes there. Give me all power there, Scotty, right? Well, same kind of thing, right? So everything kind of goes offline and all of our uh, systems go offline and, and focus there. By not going to that point, there is a physical component that, that has, right? It's his his uh, systems physically, um, our adrenaline and our um, other issues like that, they're not um, spiking. They're not going... Um, uh, uh, offline, they're not—they're uh, not revving at such a high RPM that it, it's breaking down certain aspects of us. Okay, and you know, in, in other stuff we can talk about later about polyvagal theory and st- chronic stress response and things like that that feed into this. But for the purpose of this, please just kind of take the idea that there's a lot of theoretical evidence, a lot of suggestion that. When you are in high-stress situations, the rest of your body breaks down. You have disassociation mentally and protection. You may have uh, arthritis, pain, heart disease, um, uh, nerve issues, uh, pain, chronic fatigue. There's just all sorts of things. Um, disorganized eating, disorganized sleep patterns, uh, like, uh, circadian rhythm issues. So um, it's really important for him that what he naturally did was to calm himself. Uh, Father Jenko ended up being placed in different apartments above uh, Beirut. And in one, his first one, as he got over the initial shock of his first few days there, he was there for several weeks, he started to get into a rhythm. Now, he was chained to a radiator. He uh, was given limited food. Um, He spent a lot of his time praying in prayer and meditation. He vacillated between, as we all would, anger and hope and fear and just being despondent. Um, He went through that cycle. But he also recounts some of the things that he found beautiful. For instance, there was a small window he could look out of and see the outside world. And he spent a lot of time focused on that. When he went to the bathroom, there was a window that showed an even better view of the valley below. Uh, and he, said he, he, he mentioned and reflected upon often the beauty that he saw in that. 
he made friends with a family of ants that were there um, and socialized. Um, sort of like in Castaway, right? When Tom Hanks ends up building an alter ego uh, in a relationship with Wilson the volleyball, right? It becomes an outlet. He also became very friendly in certain ways with a few guards that he found to be uh, kind and treated him well. And he reciprocated that appreciation. He was never difficult, um, didn't try to do anything demeaning or shaming, um, but he knew that he was in a pretty drastic situation. But he always had a good level of hope. But he focused very much inwardly. Come on, Daisy. It's trash. We don't need to eat garbage. Um, you guys will be very excited to know Daisy is. I just took a very nice bowel movement. So that's exciting for us all. She looks like. I don't know. You guys want her? Let me know. So, anyway. So, Father Jenko has these situations where he has moments of connection with um, his captors. There was another person at the same time that got um, kidnapped by the name of William Buckley, who was Beirut's CIA station chief. Uh, He came at this in a different angle, where he was angry, he was frustrated, he stonewalled, he was um, resistant to everything. He was resistant to the moment. He, he um, uh, as opposed to looking inwardly, he, he put attention on what he could do to, to, to trick him, to trick the, the adversary, to, to better his situation, to, to beat the situation and those that have taken to him. Um, and they lived together, uh, Mr. Buckley and Father Jenko, in the same apartments that were used as prisons. Throughout this time, they both got moved around. There were others that came in and out. Um, But we'll keep the story on Father Jenko. Towards the end of his captivity, he woke up one day and saw William Buckley being brought to the bedroom. They were not allowed to talk. He was being brought from their unified bedroom area that they lived chained and he was being brought to the bathroom for his once daily bathroom break and he was muttering to himself and demanding uh, food and uh, in Father Janko's uh, eye appeared to be completely disassociated and lost. He had gone mad and uh, within a few days uh, Father Janko woke up to see um, William Buckley being pulled by his feet uh, out of the room. He was dead. Now, William, uh, William Buckley was actually built for this situation. Uh, he had trained for this situation. He had had training and knew because this was a threat being a CIA station chief. Uh, he was mentally strong. You would imagine he was mentally strong. That was part of the assessment process. So what is it that these two people who had the same care and the same experience, one lived and one died. Ultimately, in the end, after a lot more time and and punishment, Father Janko was brought up one night 
to the top of a building. And he remembers this clearly, thinking that he was about to be the next to die. Um, he looked over the valley and saw a beautiful full moon over this valley of, of Lebanon and Beirut. And he asked if he was going to die. And his captors said, no, we saw this beautiful moon and we thought you would appreciate it. And he, they brought him up. He remembers that. He remembers uh, another important thing, and I may get the word wrong, but I think it, I believe it was Abreu or Abreha, Abre. Anyway, something like that, which in Islamic meant Holy Father. Um, that's how they referred to him. There was a certain sense of respect, even though it was a different religion, even though um, he was from the United States, this was Catholic. There was a, at least a, some respect in the religious aspect that he held on to between. The, his captors and himself. A few weeks later, he was once again brought out and he feared the worst that he was going to be assassinated. And he asked, are you going to kill me? And he said, no, Abreha, we are, you know, no, Holy Father, we are going to let you go. And then the man that had organized and was one of the head leaders of Hezbollah at the time said, um, can you find it in your heart to forgive us? as we are letting you go. Much negotiation had gone on between the United States and whatnot. I won't get into that. But as far as Father Janko knew, all he knew was he was being let go. And he said, yes, of course I can forgive you. And the truth is, is he had never really for long periods of time blamed them. So it was easy to forgive. Now, here's something that's what I want to talk about here is what makes him different than William Buckley? What makes his approach different than... Frankel, what makes it different uh, than Father Kolb, um, was their skill sets and their ability uh, in these situations on how they handle it. And it really has to do with traits and behavior and approach. Father Jinko, in order to survive mentally, had to turn within and be comfortable in a spiritual sense, in a spiritual world, to not have control of the situation to focus on what he could control, which was his reaction, which was developing the best of the situation around him. Not like Frankel, where you find meaning in it. He never found meaning. He never cared the meaning. He, he wanted to be let go. He wasn't worried about his plight or their plight. He didn't spend a lot of time, to my knowledge, thinking about how this was going to better him as a person and what he could learn from this. He focused on survival and on internal reflection and strength of letting go of control and giving up that control to let something bigger take the wheel, whether it's fate, whether it's God, whatever it is. He didn't add that pressure, that burden to his shoulders. He also didn't look to uh, judge others. It was in his nature, naturally, not to judge others. It was also inherent in his knowledge that that doesn't do him any good, right? So whereas William Buckley is immediately putting up walls and resistance and dehumanizing himself from the captors and the captors from him, uh, Father Janko is automatically building a human connection, even just in his own mind, that will help keep him strong. Okay, and puts importance on little things that can give him and feed him energy and fuel in order to be successful. Okay, 
Viktor Frankl uh, dealt with guilt and shame of being different in the approach and used his knowledge and strengths in order to elevate his prison from others. Father Janko didn't appear to and didn't necessarily have that opportunity um, like Frankel, right? And, come on, Daisy. And, uh, and Father Kolb was somebody who was much more in that resistant mode of not being emotionally and mentally defeated, which worked for him, but ultimately he did not survive. Um, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, the situations are different, so we don't know what could have happened. But we know that one became a martyr, one became a philosopher, and one went home and went about his life and survived. Um, so uh, we know that there are different ways to go about this. So when we get back, I'm going to talk about this in a conclusion about how this fits in with the coronavirus and our current lockdown and how these three approaches uh, and something called the Stocktail Paradox can fit into how we look about our situation. We'll see you in a sec. Okay, welcome back. So as we bring this to a close, um, as we walk Daisy around the block here, and uh, just so you know, this is done in multiple walks over the course of a day or two. So we've had multiple bowel movements and multiple dog bag pickups and uh, multiple fear of, of, you know, stepping in stuff we don't want to. So as we bring this all together, we do this as I walk around South Seattle and everything is relatively quiet and locked down. There's some construction going on. Everybody's been ordered to stay at home. There's a pandemic. And people are going through brand new things. Uh, my 12-year-old is incredibly social, and she is missing school like nobody's business, not because she misses schoolwork, but because she misses her friends, and she hates staying home and doesn't know why she has to, and she gets obnoxious and moody, as 12-year-olds do and is eating sugar at a rapid rate and I'm hiding things that she shouldn't be eating and she's finding them and eating, gorging them. All these things that are parenting-wise that I wish she had ways to go and be more active and be more social. And um, parents are dealing with that. They're dealing with their five-year-olds at home while they're trying to work from home needing constant attention. Um, on top of fear of, do I have enough food? Am I going to have rent money? What's going to happen if I get laid off? Um, how are we going to survive this? Not to mention the actual fear of the virus ourselves that could happen. People that are in healthcare are, are working, you know, long, long hours under situations where it's, it's likely they will contract this virus. Um, running short of equipment and the, and the system failing, people potentially having to be triaged, people in Italy dying at rapid rates. Um, and I know it doesn't seem a lot to say 7% mortality, but if you end up with, uh, right now they say anywhere from 40 to 60% of Americans could get this. We are in a country of 387 or so thousand, a million people. You know, even if, even, even if, a third of that, even if 150 million get it, and 7% of those die, that's a, that's a huge number. And if, if they get sick 
and it all happens at once, the system fails, right? Those are anxieties that happen, and they're only going to beef up as people we know get the virus, and people we know and love are at risk and get the virus and start to suffer and potentially have, we're going to see an upswing that in the next couple of weeks we believe uh, in this country as well as throughout the world so we are in a unique situation no it is not auschwitz it is not the holocaust it is not quite the same it is not the same as being taken terrorists by terrorist hezbollah and chained okay but in our very cultured world this is something that can bring a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of things because we do not feel safe, we do not feel secure, and we have so much of the unknown. So the question is, how do we deal with this and what can we learn? So our three approaches that we can learn here is we look at first, we talked about Viktor Frankl, who man's search for meaning. There is power to be said, this is an opportunity for me to do new things and find purpose in it and, and look at the bright side, right? and better myself and take something that's an inconvenience and do more with that, okay? Great, helps us understand it and explain the situation. It's tough to keep that in reality if that now adds, let's look at the bright side of the fact that my father is in ICU, I cannot see him, and he's having a painful, painful death, and there's nothing we can do about it. Or worse, there's something we can do about it, but because the system's overwhelmed, they've decided that there's nothing we're going to do about it, right? Come on, Daisy. So that changes it. The trauma changes. Now we're experiencing personal loss. It's harder to find that, right? And we may be lying to ourselves if we don't express those emotions, if we try to keep everything optimistic and it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. We, you know, rather than telling those in the Holocaust, you need to, to get through this at Auschwitz because you don't need to commit suicide. You don't need to give up. There's more to live for. That's beautiful. But you know what? There may not be. And that'd be very hard for them to explain. People that are being murdered at Auschwitz, be pretty tough to explain why you wouldn't want to give in to suicide, right? And end the suffering. It's a pretty hard argument for me. I don't know how he phrased that in such a way that would be effective. Um... Then you look at Father Kolb, who was defiant, defiant. And so where do we see this in some of the stuff? People's freedoms being, being uh, pulled away. Different things are happening. I look at, you know, our younger millennials and our younger generations, our 20-year-olds, our college students, our high school students that are still gathering anyways, that are still going through this. They're going to be defiant of this. I'm not going to let this shape me. And there seems to be a nobility in that, right? Like, I'm not going to let the virus win. I'm not going to let the lockdown win. And yet it's also a very selfish in certain ways view because it isn't them that could be the casualties of it but somebody else and so that defiance although it could be inspiring uh, comes at a cost comes at a community cost right to a certain extent uh, we look at I'm, I'm talking about my parents whose initial response to this was you know again um, this is all a media sensation to destroy the administration of Trump or, or sensationalism. This happens all the time. I've lived my lifetime this. I'm not going to let this. Um, I'm not going to be scared of this. You know, I'm going to run around and prove you wrong by licking doorknobs and door handles and, and, uh, and whatnot. You know, I'm not going to change a thing that I do. Okay, well, that's a defiance. But it also comes from a place of fear, right? They're the ones at the highest risk. It's not easy 
to look at something outside of your control and suddenly the one control you have is living your life and then giving that up in order to stay safe, right? We see that, you know, or quality of life. We see that sometimes with cancer patients that go, I'd rather not do treatment and suffer for the chance to live a little bit longer. I'd rather go out on my own terms. Okay, and that comes from a place of, of trying to control what we can't control, right? Our mortality, our death is, you know, we can't control when we die. We can't control that we are going to die. That's terrifying. It's very scary. And then you look at the last example of Father Janko, who um, internalized, reviewed, connected with himself, connected with humanity around him, and found, hey, Daisy, come on. He found energy in that and found purpose in that. Whether it was in the view of a valley, whether it was in, a, in speaking to three or four family of ants and trying to get them a little group of food, whether it, when that, it was in moments of, of reading when he was allowed to, um, whether it was in the communication of a little bit of a kind word quietly with a guard, uh, he found that humanity and he internally... Um, worked to connect inside and outside with calm and understanding and without judgment and allowed what was happening to happen and let it wash over him a little bit more. Come on, Daisy. So that, uh, that, that it, he gave up that control, that, that he, he allowed that to happen. And because of that, he survived mentally intact and physically alive more than William Buckley, who was trained to be mentally strong, but that mental rigidness worked against him. And the best way to put this is something by uh, Admiral Stockdale, who uh, was in the Hanoi Hilton. And there's a long story about it, but eventually he was asked why he survived and others didn't. And he said, the ones that didn't die died of a broken heart. They would say that they were going to be home by Christmas, and they were sure of it, and they were optimistic. And, And... you know, Frankel about it, right? And then Christmas would go and they wouldn't be home and they'd be sad, but they go, it's okay, we'll be home by spring. And then spring would come and go and they wouldn't be home and then they'd say, we'll be home by summer. And that would happen. And all of a sudden, they would give up. They would be heartbroken because they weren't honest with themselves, right? And so what Stockdale was talking about and what he says is you have to have, the paradox is you have to have complete belief that whatever that that what is going to happen you're going to go through this but you have complete belief without a doubt that you're going to survive and overcome you can't doubt that you can't doubt the ending you can't doubt the result the outcome but you can't ever be dishonest with yourself about how dire the situation is you are in and that is the ability to assimilate and the mental flexibility we need in order to overcome tough times in trauma, um, in change, as things get a little harder. Seek out those around you that you can get energy from humanity. Seek out those around you that are doing good. Find ways to volunteer and help others. Don't hoard stuff and take it for yourself and prepare a doomsday approach. Even if you physically live longer, you will die spiritually and mentally. Find the humanity both inside and outside. Look for the purpose, but don't deny that things are scary. 
Look at the purpose of why this may happen and be positive, but don't look and deny that you may lose your job. Okay? You know, don't be, be emotionally prepared for that, but also take the burden off that that means something is not going to be okay. Instead, recognize that it doesn't define who you are and that no matter what happens, you are going to survive and be okay. You are. You are. The only thing that can destroy you is from within. So I leave you that story just to give you a kind of an idea. I wish everybody to be fine and safe and healthy. Follow instructions as necessary. Daisy, we are not sniffing and eating everything. Come on. My goodness. Um, I wish you a dog that would heal. I wish you had a dog that would like walk for five steps and then not stop and have to pee on stuff. I hope that you are uh, connecting with your loved ones. Stay close. Stay happy and uh, check back in. We're going to have more stories as this continues on these dog walks because I have time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out uh, Tales from the Nobody, the book, if you're terribly bored. I think Kindle has it for uh, we pay you 10 bucks to read it. So we'll see you later. <laughs>